Hi there, friends, and welcome to this episode of Burn Your Draft, the podcast exploring the read thesis process and experience. I'm your host, Amelie Andreas, and today we'll be deducing the indeducible with math philosophy graduate Rowan Banks. If you are already missing the sound of Frank's voice, you'll be pleased to know that this episode, along with the next few that we'll be posting, were recorded by Frank last semester and edited this semester by yours truly. Ah, the fine art of collaboration. Anyways, I'll let Frank take over from here, so enjoy the episode, and I'll see you again at the end. Welcome, Rowan. Uh, Welcome to Burn Your Draft. Uh, To start, why don't you give us your name, where you're from, what department you're in, and the name of your thesis. I'm Rowan. I used to be Kaylee, so if you knew me by Kaylee, hi, I'm in the middle of changing my name. Maybe I should say something about that sometime. (laughs) Congrats. <laughs> I, um, I was in the math philosophy department. I graduated within the interdisciplinary degree last October, which is when I finished my thesis. Um, and my thesis title was, This Thesis is Indeducible Approaches for Justifying the Consistency of Pino Arithmetic After Riddle. So what is that about? I cannot tell from the title. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. Um, yeah, that's totally fine. Um, so, Riddle has, um, famous, uh, inconsistency and incompleteness proofs, um, by which, um, any theory, uh, about as, as complex as Pino arithmetic or more complex, that's a bit of a, um, technicality can't prove its own consistency. Um, and then there's the um, there's also the incompleteness theorem, which is very related. But um, the um, inconsistency result is was more relevant for the epistemic problems in math. Uh, people were really wanted math to be epistemically contained prior to Hurdle's theorem. Um, they wanted um, it to completely self-justify itself. And so when Gödel has had his theorem, it had a really, um, it had a big influence on the philosophy of math because it seemed that that was no longer possible. It couldn't be self-contained because there were these problems with um, born out of self-referentiality. Um, so one of the attempts for justifying the consistency of Pino arithmetic involved. Um, using theories that were actually more complex than Pino arithmetic to prove the consistency of Pino arithmetic. Um, And one of the main questions in my thesis is, does this attempt actually work? Or so can can you do this? Um, And um, my conclusion wound up uh, being no. (laughs) No, it provides no evidence for the consistency of Pino arithmetic. How do you go about proving that? Okay, it wasn't a it wasn't a proof. It was a philosophical argument that used elements of mathematics. I want to <laughs> clarify. Yeah, clarify because there's the keyword evidence. That's from philosophy of science, actually. So I was applying philosophy of science to math, and maybe an archetypical example of what evidence is. And this is oversimplified. Is like let's say you have the proclamation: all crows are black. And then you see a black crow, is that evidence for the proclamation all crows are black? So it's not proof, it's inductive reasoning. Got you. It's it's like causation versus correlation. 
Well, deduction would be um, a logical argument where the result, it's not probabilistic, you proved it, and that's what you learn in math. Um, but in science, um, you might have more of a probabilistic result where, you know, like scientists don't really say, I, we proved this. They say there's strong evidence for this. Mathematicians say we proved this. So what I did in my thesis was apply a ideas for how you get evidence in science to math. Interesting. So how was this topic chosen? How did you come upon it? It was really difficult to find a topic that the math department and the philosophy department were both happy about. Yeah, <laughs> I could see that being the case. Um, so I was wanting to find a, um, a compelling philosophical problem um, that centered around something specific in math. So um, since, so this centered around um, the idea of Jensen's theorem, which was the um, proof I mentioned before, which used a theory more complex than Pino arithmetic as a proof for Pino arithmetic's consistency. So I wanted to find something that was both specific within math and also had a compelling philosophical problem. Yeah. So you kind of went on, you said a little bit that like you found that no, it, it doesn't as an outcome. Could you talk a little bit more about that? How do you, how you came to the conclusion and how this process went over this last, or the last like year that you did this project? <laughs> um, yeah. Um, so one of the things I was doing was thinking about various philosophies of math um, and in each type of philosophy where the epistemic justification comes from for different types of, um, for the consistency of arithmetic and for proclamations. Um, and one of the arguments I had was effectively a pragmatic argument about truth, where if you have a theory and you've argued that it's true, in some respect, then it should also be consistent. Um, and I guess it's, there were some technicalities in that argument, like you had to have all of the statements in that theory be in the same language and under the same translation, um, because um, you can have two statements that appear to contradict each other, but if they are interpreted differently, can actually, the actual meaning doesn't actually contradict. So it's like, if you have two contradicting statements in a theory, then under most forms of logic that people use, you can derive any possible statement in that theory. So if you have two contradicting statements, then you have any possible statement in that theory. You have uh, the sky is blue, the sky is not blue, the grass is green, the grass is not green, and it effectively becomes meaningless. So I guess what I was sort of saying is under any reasonable conception of truth if you argue that something is true it is also an argument that it is consistent and you found that to not be the case well it was just an argument that it was it was just a stepping stone that I used to get to the my conclusion that Jensen's theorem was probably not providing additional evidence for the consistency of Pino. Got you. So 
by Girdle's um, inconsistency result, a theory that is of sufficient complexity can't prove its own consistency. But what you're probably interested in is the truth of the theory. So if the truth of the theory automatically gives you evidence for the consistency, then perhaps the fact that it can't prove its own consistency isn't that big of a deal. Um, and then there were, there were a lot of other details, but maybe that's one of the gist. I can I can see where this is very philosophy and math because I'm hearing like numbers speak kind of, but I'm also very confused. Um, what does a math philosophy thesis look like? Like, what do you have to provide for it to be a reasonable argument or a reasonable thesis? Okay, so I'm not sure how good of a job I did up here, <laughs> but um, I would say um, technical detail in math theories, a compelling philosophical question and argument, and also reason to believe that these two questions are, these ideas are interconnected and that the math is necessary to discuss philosophy, I would say. And perhaps it could go the other way around of philosophy of math, um, where um, you are needing some of the philosophy to understand the topic of math you're discussing. Perhaps it could go that way too. So are you, for like explaining everything, are you giving kind of like a math explanation as well as a philosophical philosophical explanation? It depended on the section. Got you. What are the different sections, would you say? Um, well, I had um, a section that was background where I talked about mathematical logic and theories in a general sense to kind of discuss just which things are under the question, which might face the consequences of this argument, and also to develop relevant language that makes it easier to make arguments later. Um, I had um, a section that was more focusing on the philosophy of science and how you might apply it to the idea of evidence to math. Um, and I guess in, in that section, it was like introducing the idea of scientific induction and, and like disambiguating it um, from other forms of deduction that I talked about in the first chapter. Uh, and, um, and then I also um, have this um, thing where like if you have a, if you have a set of axioms, how, how likely is it to have a contradiction later? Um, so um, that would that would take a bit to explain, and I'm not sure how useful it was, but um, it's kind of fun. Um, and then I had other sections that were um, um, putting putting those things um, together and applying them to the specific context of um, Ginsburg's theorem. Were the sections like adding on to a process, or did you feel like you had different processes that you had to do for each one? Yeah. Um, Oh my God, I changed the outline so many times. Like, cause I, I would get more information and then realize the whole order of the argument sucked. <laughs> I feel like I come to that conclusion a lot, but don't do anything about it. So <laughs> I will for my thesis, but most papers aren't a thesis. Yeah, I mean, there were some things where I wanted to think about a particular topic, but I wasn't sure how it was relevant to the picture as a whole. Um, but then later it became the language that was necessary for me to make a coherent argument about something else. So I was doing something and it seems completely out of place, but then it was in place later. 
Nice. Um, it was it was very confusing. <laughs> uh, and also, um, I guess I would warn um, people doing interdisciplinary theses that I found it considerably harder to write my thesis than I found it to write um, essays in either department individually because I was trying to integrate the style and not have a section like, oh, this is the math section and this is the philosophy section and this could have just been two theses. I was trying really hard not to do that, but that wound up being really confusing because the styles of writing in each discipline are pretty different. Yeah, I could see that being an issue. There's definitely a grammar to like different departments. Uh, speaking of which, unexpected challenges. Oh. <laughs> There's a big oh. one that a lot of people are talking about. <laughs> uh, shutting down the school. But I would say mental health, mostly. Um, that I would say that's the reason that... I finished it in October when the school shut down. It was just, it was just kind of too much for me to deal with the other classes and the world changing all at once because I had been struggling with mental health prior to the pandemic starting. And then when the pandemic started, all my resources went away. Completely understandable. I would not be able to do a thesis at that point. The uh, the forest fires sucked. Oh yeah, <laughs> smoke. I thought that the world was really ending at that point I was like Oregon cannot get hit with another thing it's it's not it's not fair (laughs) I think some of those um disasters can seem or they they're not disasters some of those environmental things can seem like the end of the world when they happen but they don't seem like the end of the world in retrospect I do want to say that because if like maybe you're sitting there being anxious, like, oh, I need to graduate. What if some terrible thing happens? I was actually worried about some terrible thing happening to the world before the pandemic. I was like, oh, what if some terrible thing happens and I can't graduate? Yeah. It was like I was thinking that. And then it like, and then people are like, nah, nah, that's not gonna happen. And then the pandemic happened, and I'm like, oh man, why? <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> you, know, just like, you know what? If, if bad things happen, they happen. Yeah. You figure out what now. I feel like new normal has been passed around a lot, but... You're <laughs> still the same person. It's true. It happens a lot. There's a lot of different new normals that come about. Yeah. So, yeah, if... Um, I mean, if the thing you're most afraid of happens, it's it's not the end of the world. There's still time after that. You keep learning and figuring things out. The middle of projects is probably confusing and bewildering no matter what. Um, thesis versus natural disaster. I don't know which one's more stressful. <laughs> uh, so what skills did you acquire or strengthen during this experience? Um, writing. Writing. I figured out that if I had it at a certain point, if I had a goal of just writing two pages per day, then that was the most effective for me. That is very smart. That's that's key. That sounds good. <laughs> and the reason the reason I did this is because if you have a topic, it can be really hard to predict how long it will take to finish it. So like if you're saying like, oh, I want to address this topic today, it could be that it turns out that that topic only needs a paragraph or it could turn out that it needs like 20 pages. And you don't know that before you start. And so having that as your goal 
can be a little bit demoralizing if it turns out it's one of those things that's going to need to take 20 pages when you allotted a day for it. So just write two pages um, kind of allows for flexibility in what you'll find out as you start the process. And so is a more reliable goal. I also had like different stars for myself. So if I did like a free write, that's one star. If I do like acceptable draft of two pages, that's like two stars. If I do like more, it's like three stars nice. or something. So it was, even if I didn't quite need it, I still gave myself something and it was like not all or just not having all or nothing goals, just letting myself be able to do something and then count that, but give myself more credit if I do more felt better than just saying like, this is the goal. I achieve it or I don't. And if I don't, I'm an abject failure. Yeah, I, I, that's smart. I really like that strategy. But how do you think your thesis experience will inform your life after read? Is there anything that you feel like you've taken from that experience into what you're doing now? or what you plan on doing? Yeah, so I guess since I was writing during the summer, I had to do a lot of writing without any immediate solidification from my advisors or anything. So I just had to like have these, I did these micro chunks myself. Um, and I've just kept writing after I finished my thesis. That's nice. Nice. Uh, and also um, I think for a lot of it, I felt a little bit stuck because I didn't think I had anything worth saying. Um, and so, but when I kind of realized, oh, actually, you know, I've been in college for four years. I have some knowledge. There's some things I can just write without doing additional research. I already know something that was a major help for getting me going. Just, and I guess trust the process. That's a, that's a cliche, but but just like, no, even if it seems ridiculous, you don't understand where point B is exactly just being able to sit down and realize that um, if you show up, something fruitful will happen, even if you can't completely predict it was, was really helpful. That sounds helpful. I don't have any more questions. Do you feel like I missed anything or do you want to add anything more? I would say that um, doing an, an interdisciplinary major makes um, the thesis process more logistically difficult. But if you're interested, and, it, <laughs> and especially during a pandemic with existing problems, maybe, but I would encourage uh, people to do them if they're interested um, because. Uh, academics tends to have a really strong emphasis on hyper-specialization, um, but um, being able to see the similarities and between two disciplines, um, I think, can lead to creativity because you're, you, might, you might be applying ideas from one discipline into another, um, and that might be harder if there's a bit of a language shift. Um, but I think it also can lead to creativity. Um, there was a book I um, I read about um, being a, a generalist. Um, and there are a lot of benefits to learning different things and then applying them to each other. One of them is um, innovation. Um, I think people can be 
dissuaded from doing it because there's this idea of finding your passion in, in American culture. Um, and also, um, if you're focusing on too many things, it can also feel like it's harder to keep up in individual disciplines, like the people who are focusing solely on one discipline know more about it than you and you can feel a little bit self-conscious. Um, but, um, but there is uh, research that has been done that has shown that um, being a generalist is an important aspect of society and that it needs people who do that. So I, I, do, I did want to say that. I don't remember research offhand. Yeah. No, I think I think that's a great great addition. Definitely interdisciplinary. Do a minor. Do anything. <laughs> um, yeah. Cool. So thank you for participating and joining and talking about your thesis. This was very cool to hear about. I am not a huge math and philosophy person, so I'm sorry if I didn't ask all the right questions. But I hope that you got a lot of it out. Yeah. I, I, I understood some of it. <laughs> Maybe I should write like a like two page like summary. <laughs> we can link it. We can link it. <laughs> I did not prepare how to explain it well. <laughs> no, I think you did a fantastic job of explaining it. My brain just doesn't do philosophy and math that well. But <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of people who are going to listen to it and be like, yeah, yeah, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Uh, have a great rest of your day. Yeah, you too. Bye, Rowan. And I'm back. I would say that on a scale of 1 to 10, my brain does philosophy at about a 4 and math at a solid 3. Don't tell my calculus professor I said that. With that in mind, a special thanks to Rowan for making the last 20 minutes of philosophizing and mathematicking a true pleasure even for those of us who may be slightly less than philosophically or mathematically inclined. Another big thanks to all of our listeners who took the time to tune into this episode. I hope you'll join us again to hear from more alumni and students about what it means to burn your draft. Burn Your Draft is a production of Reed College and the Center for Life Beyond Reed, created jointly by students, alumni, and staff. This episode was produced and engineered by me, Reed College student Amelie Andreas. Our executive producer is Seth Paskin, class of 1990, with technical advising from staff member Joe Janaga. Our project manager is Nate Martin, staff member and class of 2016. Music by Jack Salvucci, class of 2020, and podcast start by alumni Henry Gotchlik and Lillian Pham. This podcast was made possible by a gift from Seth Paskin. <laughs>